Hey everyone, this is X O'Connor and you are listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. I hope all of you had a fantastic New Year's. To kick this new year off, we've got a great episode for you this week. We've got with us Andy Carp in the studio. Andy is a legendary A&R man, worked for Lava Atlantic Records, worked with bands, signed bands like, I don't know, Kid Rock, Simple Plan, Uncle Cracker, Smile Empty Soul, and Skillet, just to name a few. So this dude is a heavyweight when it comes to the music business, and he sat down with us for a nice, long talk about everything music. If you're looking to take your songs or your band to the next level, how to get noticed, how to get recognized, how to draw attention, what labels are looking for, all of that stuff, he goes into some serious detail here. You don't want to miss a moment of this episode, so buckle up. It's going to be awesome. Before we jump in, though, just wanted to remind you guys, coming up at the end of January, our 100th episode, it's going to be a very special episode. And after that, we are launching something brand new. The podcast is changing a little bit, and it's going to be fantastic. We are super excited about it, so make sure to stick around. You guys are going to not want to miss it. We have some great things in store, great guests. So remember, if you guys would not mind, go ahead and leave us a review and a rating right there in iTunes, or if you're watching this here on YouTube, hit subscribe, follow our channel. Also, leave some reviews and comments below. We love to hear from all of you. We always like trying to make this as best as humanly possible, so we love to hear what you guys think of the show. And again, to keep up with all things Full Circle Music, make sure to follow us on social media. Use Instagram, at officialfcmusic. But that's enough jabbering from me. Let's dive into this episode with Andy Carp. Myself and my trusty friend and awesome co-producer, X O'Connor. Hello there. Are in studio today with a living legend in the music business. According to my mom, maybe. Yes. Oh, she told me. You're a <laughs> living told, legend. She, she did tell me that. Confirmation. It's, only at, uh, <laughs> it's only at bar mitzvahs and stuff like that. And, yeah. But this is really cool. Our friend Andy Carp, A&R from Atlantic Records, Lava Records, signed artists like Kid Rock, Simple Plan, Skillet, and Uncle Cracker, just to name a few. 35 million or so records sold worldwide. A yeah, mind bender. Yeah, something like that. But uh... And you got into this business. Your college internship was 1988. Do you know what year I was born? You told me that, and that is something that is very off-putting <laughs> to me. <laughs> I was born October of 1987. Yeah, so that's... That's a compliment. You've oh been in the music boy. business for 30 years. I, that's, I was filing contracts and listening to bad demos and stuff, and you were being bottle-fed or something, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> eating, eating Gerber's baby food or something like that. It's amazing, though. I mean, that's, that's passion that you've been in this business. It, it's... You can't have a plan B. Well, that's talk yeah, about we've that. talked about that a fair amount. And and every time I have had doubts about being in this business and staying in this business, I've tried to think about what else I would do. And I can't ever figure that out. I would always keep coming back to music is it's what I'm about. It's it's kind of the center of my life outside mm-hmm. of my family and friends and yeah. and my doggy. You know, it, yeah. it's kind of a a life enhancing thing, and yeah. in this business, as we all know, and I think this is true for all people in creative arts, is that you can't have a backup plan. You have yeah. to be committed a hundred percent to it. And that sounds like a cliche, but the truth is, in music, it's just too hard. Yeah, it's too hard to 
eke out a living to in whatever area you're pursuing. And there are too many impediments along the way. There are too many periods where you get knocked down. Yeah. And this may be true in other fields too, but it, but it's certainly true in in music. Yeah, you know that sense that perseverance is critical to having any chance of succeeding in it. Yeah, you know, and I've I've had a lot of luck along the way too, but I do believe that luck often comes to the people who are willing to work the hardest. Yeah, they tend to That's get a good word. So, nineteen eighty eight. What was your you know big break that sort of put you on the map? in the label world or in the music business? Like, did you have one or was it kind of more of a series of... You're talking back when, when back in my sort of intern like days? Like getting into the business. Like, well, okay. did, well, did, did you have a big break? Well, here's the story. I had, my grandfather was an established, very established person in the movie world. He'd run a couple of big studios, but in his early days, he ran a theater in New York that called the Paramount Theater that was a very famous theater. And he had a very, very good friend named Lou Levy, who was a legend in music publishing. And Lou Levy was married to one of the Andrews sisters. And he and my grandfather were friends for many, many years, you know, decades. And when I was looking to have my first sort of working functional experiences in the business, it just so happened that Lou's son, Leeds, was running MCA Music Publishing at the time. And Leeds was a great guy and a, and a very experienced music publisher and gave me an opportunity to be a gopher, yeah. basically, which is what a internship, you know, usually is at that stage. Even though MCA was an LA-based label, there was a New York contingent. So I was able to, to sort of be in the New York A&R department and the publishing section, which was a remarkable, invaluable experience. And I, I would always tell this to interns back when I was running Atlantic's and Lava's A&R departments, which was, you know, you're going to do a lot of grunt work that is not in and of itself particularly interesting. But you have an incredible opportunity to watch and to ask questions. Mm. And this will only be what you are willing to make out of it. It can be a life-altering or career trajectory or uh, altering experience, or it can be just something you do for a summer depending on what you're willing to make of it. And I was fortunate that when they would give me things to file, like contracts and stuff like that, well, I would read them. And I managed to gain a trust, the trust of a bunch of the A&R staff there so that they started to have me sift through their boxes and boxes of demos. And I would listen to every one of them, which was really not an optimal way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> and I would, you know, they were cassettes usually at the time. For those of you young folks, those were big rectangular things that played, uh, that, that made music when you put them in a sort in of a very odd looking, uh, odd looking device. <laughs> and then I would write a review of each song on an index card and stick it in the cassette. And those A&R people started using my reviews when people would call them about them. And they, and they hadn't listened to the tapes themselves, but they'd say, oh yeah, I thought that song number one was kind of, Reminiscent of this and number two. and So that was pretty cool. It, you know, it made me realize that maybe I had an aptitude for something like that, mm. for something on the, on the A&R side. And the truth is, there are people that I worked with then that I'm still friends with now, mm. you know, all these years later. We get a big kick out of the fact that I was their intern when I was <laughs> 20 or whatever it was, 19. So yeah. 
so you were doing that for a while, like as the A&R assistant or right. whatever the title was. Was there a moment that you found somebody and then that like got you kind of on the map? As no, a, as not, 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 a, not during that summer. That summer, I, I did a lot of work there and I would take the express bus into the city from the suburbs where I lived and I would listen to Operation Mind Crime by Queensryche over and over again uh, <laughs> on my, my walk, my Sony Walkman. And that was my record of that summer. But it, there wasn't any th- single thing. But what was good was I came into that being somewhat self-aware for a 20-year-old. Mm. And I realized a couple of things, which is that first, this internship was, as I mentioned, it was going to be whatever I was willing to turn it into. But that I also had an obligation to work my butt off because I got that job because of a series of connections that go back to my grandfather. And people vouched for me on his word. And so I had a responsibility to not be a crappy intern. Yeah, I had a responsibility to my grandfather and all those people that took his word that I was a, you know, a reliable, hardworking person. Yeah. That was a great experience in sort of having that, that feeling solidified inside my mind. And that served me very, very well when I started working at labels after I graduated. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. That story just kind of brings me back to something we talked about before we even sat down in here. Because, you know, we were for the people listening, we were kind of just having a discussion about people trying to get into the music industry. And you, you said something that I think stuck with both Seth and I, that the recipe for a career is work. And I feel that's like it. that's, I mean, sometimes it kind of gets lost on people. I know a lot of people are just wanting to, the way the culture is right now, it's all about immediate like satisfaction. Like right. you can get your news right now. You can get your music right now. You can do all this right now, right. but it's coming into music and everything. There is a lot that goes into just establishing yourself as someone that can be trusted, but also investing yourself into the things that you're doing. Absolutely. And and if you are aware enough that you are going into this without a backup plan and you're not prepared to work, you know, that's a guarantee that you won't succeed. So, you know, I have, there's a common thread generally amongst successful artists. And, you know, of course you will see outliers and things that disprove this this belief. But very often the artists that are able to sustain careers are the ones that are willing to work the hardest. And, you know, I think back, I signed a band called Simple Plan who have done very well as professional musicians. Even though they, you can agree or disagree as to whether they've hit their commercial apex or not. That's not the point. The point is that these guys are all, they created the foundation for what they are now, which is guys that are in very good shape financially, that don't have to tour for a living. They can do it when they want to because they worked harder than everybody else when they were having their highest level of commercial success. They worked their way up to, they signed every autograph, they stayed you know, and made individual connections with fans. They called fans on their cell phones. They did all of these things that social media allows you to do now, but, you know, wasn't available to do when they started. And it's created people that testify for them. And I mean that in the marketing sense and that have been with them for 15 years and aren't going anywhere. 
And that's the, you know, I, I remember those guys in the early days of their first record, we had a thing where they were going to Japan to play shows there. And, you know, they were, Montreal to Japan is a long flight. That's, you know, I don't know, 16 hours, something like that. It's a brutal flight. And right after they landed, we found out that they had an opportunity to play at the, what was called the WIA convention. WIA was sort for Warner Electra Atlantic. It was the distribution arm of Atlantic Records and Electra Records and Warner Brothers Records. And at the time, it was a very, very significant opportunity because you had to get records in stores. And this would, playing there and having it be successful would fire up the entire staff of the big distribution arm, which would get them better placement in stores and all these things that were critical to selling records back then. And they learned of this right after they landed in Japan. They got right back on a plane. They flew out to, I think it was either in the middle of Canada or it was in Minneapolis or something like that. It literally just came they, right they back. They came right back, played the Wii convention, shook hands, kissed babies, did all the stuff they had to do, hopped back on a plane, went back to Japan. I think that maybe they missed one show or maybe they, they caught all of them. But the fact that those guys were, were like, of course we're going to get on the plane and come back. Just, you know, shows you those are guys that wanted to do this and were going to make it happen for themselves. And, uh, you know, I tell artists all the time that the goal, goals have to be realistic, achievable, and measurable. You know, and saying that you want to have, you want to headline Madison Square Garden, well, that's not a goal. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, a like pipe, a that, that's a pipe dream. Yeah. You know, now it's possible you might actually achieve it, yeah. but it's not a goal. A goal is something that you can plot out and connect the dots over a certain period of time yeah. and reach. And then you set a new one. And those guys from the beginning did everything the right way. And that's part of the reason that they have a career now and they make real money yep. and they don't have to do it because they don't have other options. Yeah. They do it when they want to. And that's pretty perfect for a group of guys that are, you know, in their late 30s now with kids and, yep. and they live... Some of the guys still live in Montreal. One guy lives in San Diego. One lives in LA. So they're spread out all over the place. And uh, as bands always do as they become adults and have families and things like that, yeah. it's a really good example of how to do stuff right. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have any, I guess, so the contrast of, and you don't have to use specific examples if you don't want to, but to contrast that, mm -hmm. you know, what are some things that artists have done the wrong way? Like, in your experience of watching bands come and go, artists get dropped, artists not sure. perform well. Well, you know, this is something I tell artists all the time, which is, you know, especially when they're thinking about signing to a label, which is, you know, what's, can you give me any advice? And I always say, prepare to get dropped. Right. And that's, that <laughs> sounds pretty, yeah, pretty brutal, grim. Yeah. pretty brutal on the, on the, but most of these things are always about context. And, uh, you know, when I say to them, well, look, you know, Robert Plant, and Pete Townsend got dropped. Yeah. You know, there was some point where a decision was made on Atlantic's part or on their management's part with Atlantic that it didn't make sense for them to make another record for that label. And every major artist has is likely going to experience something like that. Now, if you're not a major artist, don't think you're so special that that's not something that is probably not going to happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, you know, we're not all sort of individual snowflakes in this. We're... Yeah musicians. So I think the lesson, when bands don't do it right, it's usually, in my experience, 
based around unrealistic expectations, which can be a lot of people's fault. But it's also very much if an artist thinks that people are going to do things for them. And that doesn't mean a label is going to, you know, has promised to work your record and they didn't do it as well as they promised. That could be the case or a case. But the best thing you can do as an artist is prepare to be dropped. And what I mean by that is build up as much stuff for yourself outside of what any label can provide for you. You'll get a better deal if you do sign with somebody and you'll be better prepared if a point comes where you can continue your career without that. I mean, I have artists that I signed that have done better, have made more money after getting dropped than they ever made when they were signed. And, you know, not everybody's going to make it. And it's pretty tough to make it. But if your realistic goal is to be able to play music when you're 40 for a living, instead of having to do a job that you hate, you know, whatever that might be, that's a, that's a good goal. That's a goal that's based in reality and is achievable if you approach it the right way and you're good enough. That's good. I'd love to hear, just because he's been such an iconic artist for years now, what's the uh, Kid Rock story? How did that happen? Well, his story is really interesting. You're talking about how he got signed and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, how did you connect with him? I'll tell you the whole story. It's interesting. And, you know, people have lots of different opinions about him in part because he's been politically outspoken in the last couple of years, which he, you know, he was never sort of a a political artist in his earlier days, although he was always sort of politically incorrect, I I would (laughs) posit. But, But he also is exceptionally smart and he's very witty and very likable, you know, person to person and he gets the joke. Which is one of the things that's really cool about him is that he can he can laugh at himself. So the story was this. It took me about nine months to get him signed. And he was only the second artist I ever signed. His manager at the time, so a fellow named Steve Hutton, you know, Kid Rock had a profile that was being kept alive by a magazine that the Beastie Boys published called Grand Royal in uh the mid nineties, he, he had signed to Jive Records, which was a real label and had a lot of success at, at Jive when he was 18 or 19 and put out a record, which was, I mean, the videos are on, on YouTube and, and they're not, they're kind of rough. Yeah. He, he was sort of the prototypical, unfortunately quaffed white rapper of that era. Yeah. So he got dropped from Jive and then he signed to another independent label, put out a second record and got dropped. So he had a following in Detroit. He could sell out the State Theater there, which was maybe 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 people, which is, you know, a, a substantive, a real Especially thing. Especially before the internet. Absolutely. This was before the internet. This, we were talking like 97. But he had no real following outside of Detroit. So he would go outside of Detroit and he would draw 50, 100 people, something like that. And so Steve Hutton had been saying to me, uh, I mean, I got to know him actually here in Nashville. I first met him at a music conference down here and we were just two guys that were trying to, and I think we met each other because we didn't really know anybody. Yeah. Hey, you don't know anybody? Yeah, do you know anybody? No, I don't. Let's, let's yeah. go have a beer. <laughs> let's know each and, other. Right, let's know each other. <laughs> and so he was always telling me, you got to see this guy, Kid Rock. And so finally, it's like, all right, let's go. And we, I went to Cleveland 
And he was playing a place called the Grog Shop. I don't know if I don't think it's there anymore. I remember that. Place. Do you remember the Grog Shop? I do. Yeah, Ohio. I've been there. It. Yeah. So went to the Grog Shop. The Grog Shop had a little stage, and he had this whole. He had this big band that, that was, you know, a crazy large but cool band. And if my memory serves, there, there were like fifty kids there, and he started the show by climbing out of a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> why, and, not, you know? <laughs> why not? You Because why not, right? Everybody, everybody does that. And so the thing that was most noticeable to me was that every one of these kids knew every word, right? And, you know, when I would go see bands, and I do this now still, even if they've got a thousand people there to see them, I walk around the audience and I check and see if people know the words. And to me, that's a good indicator as to whether the audience are real fans whether they're people who just need something to do on a Thursday, Friday night or something like that. Wow, that's right? good. And so in this case, these kids knew every word. So that said something to me. And so I hung out with him after the show and he was very cool. And we made an arrangement, appointment to go bring my boss at the time to go see him in Detroit, which we did. And a few months later, we went to see him at the State Theater. And, and that show was berserk. It was, you know, huge flashing sign and it was like a kiss show and yeah. and women were, were jumping do, on stage and taking, their, taking yeah. their shirts off. And stuff. It <laughs> were was, they it doing was, that because they knew like these label people were coming or they just did that? No, that's they the, nobody that anyway. had nobody had idea. Yeah, that was just, that was just the show. Yeah. That was the show and that was the audience reaction to the show. And it was, you know, it was yeah. berserk. And we had this great hang with them afterwards and it was really a great trip. And so when, I, when my boss and I were discussing it later, his response to me was, he's great, but I don't hear the songs. And I said, okay, well, let me, let me try to get him. And we tried to sign Kid Rock to a demo deal. And he wasn't interested in that. And I said, okay, well, never mind. We'll just, we'll just do it anyway. And so I went around looking for people that had a background in rap and rock that could kind of help edit his ideas and and because he had a lot of ideas, but the songs weren't really structured at the time like tight songs. But he definitely had a thing. And I remember being told by lots of people, go blank yourself, lose yeah. my number, don't ever call me again. I hate this. Yeah. You know, drop dead. I mean every thing you could possibly imagine, except for one guy, a guy named John Travis. And John Travis had worked with Sugar Ray and, and a bunch of rap acts and, you know, had the, you know, kind of the foot yeah. in both fields. Yeah. And so we put them together and they came back with two songs that made it onto the Devil Without a Cause record. And I sent those demos to my boss who was in LA at the time. And this was months and months had gone by at this point. And he freaked out and said, we got to sign this. We got to do it. I was really psyched because, yeah. you know, I'd only signed one other act at that point. And, you know, when you were a young A&R person, one of the toughest things to do is to get your boss let you do something. Yeah. To let you do something. So we started negotiating. And in the meantime, some of those demos made their way. And I know it wasn't from him because he started getting calls. I think Madonna called him and Jimmy Iovine called him. Like all, all these serious players started calling him for meetings because they heard the demos that we did with him and he didn't take meetings with any of them. He was like, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm signing to Lava. And we did a deal and went to work. 
and the story of the making of the of the record is an entire podcast on its own. But <laughs> but again, it's a it's an incredible story of perseverance because you're talking about a guy who had been dropped twice, yeah. right? And I remember when I told other A and R people, it wasn't like he was a secret. People knew about him. You know, he'd been around. People thought he was just a Detroit guy. And I remember other A and R people talking to me, and I said, "Hey, I just signed this guy named Kid Rock," and they were like, "You signed him?" And I would go, yeah. And he goes, good luck with that, you know, which shows you how there's no, <laughs> yeah. everybody's wrong a lot. Well, yeah. And to his credit, he was an honorable guy. And well, yeah, if he's not taking those meetings, did, I mean. Didn't take those. I mean, I can understand you in, in 1997 wanting to take a meeting with Madonna or oh, yeah. Interscope or something like that, you know, and he stuck with us and we had a really, really good run together. Yeah. So and that just says so much to be dropped twice in that climate, going back to like just the landscape of there's no internet, there's no instant gratification. So it's like, you know, nowadays, if, if a band's struggling, you know, they can still reach an audience. Yeah. Back then, I mean, he was selling yeah, CDs we, out of the trunk of his car. Yeah. He's, yeah. That's so much work. And, but to just stick with it, I mean, that just says but so much about character. I'll tell, I'll, it does. And I'll tell you another thing about him. You know, he was part of the way he, that, that you know, this was his, life. You know, he was going to be successful at this one way or the other was, you know, he had a young son at the time that he had sole custody of. So he had responsibilities that were, you know, real ones beyond just himself. He had a little house and a studio in the basement and he would do things like he would play Detroit three or four times a year, which was the one market where he could pull in real bank. And he would sell very elaborate merchandise, all kinds of football jerseys, leather jackets, jean jackets. And then the next show, it would be a wholly, completely different run of merchandise. So the fans all knew that if, if they saw something they liked at that show, they had to buy it right now because next time it wasn't going to be there. And that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of risk of, courage and being willing to throw down money in advance. But he went through his merch and it made him a lot of money and enabled him to finance his, uh, you know, his career when he was going through this period between labels where he was selling CDs locally and literally out of his car. Man. So, I mean, that was commitment to, you know, the way forward for yeah. him. And nothing really changes, right? Like that same drives needed today, even though there's so much more accessibility, right? You know, it's certainly easier to get your music out there because yeah. distribution is leveled, but there's a flip side to that as well, which is there's infinitely more clutter for the listener. And, you know, the, the toughest thing for any young band, well, it's not just young band, it's for established bands too, is for to get people aware that there's even something new out there. You know, you know, you see veteran bands going through this all the time where they're trying to go, hey, we have a new record. You know, we have a new record and people don't know. They just don't, you know, outside of the the really hardcore fan base, they, they just don't because we've got our phones all the time and we're used to stuff, to information entering our universe constantly. Emails, texts, you know, you open an, uh, a news app and you've got something to read or celebrate or stress about. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, it's just, it's an endless amount of distractions what it does for, you know, for, for artists is it creates an environment where the stuff that does get through has a shorter lifespan and most stuff that might've gotten through doesn't. 
But it also tells you something else, which is you have to have patience because you see some records taking, and I say records just out of habit. I mean, I mean, just, you know, songs and, but sometimes it takes a year for something to build and connect. And everybody in the chain, whether you're an artist that's signed to a, to a major or an independent label or doing it yourself, you really got to build it one fan at a time, one listener at a time. But what that, one of the things I learned from that first Kid Rock show was that if you've got a small number of people that believe, you can build a business on that. Have you heard the, you've probably heard the essay, Thousand True Fans? Yes. It's kind of a famous marketing mm-hmm. thing. And we, we go back to it time after time, but that's what that sounds like. That's what that story sounds like is whoever his thousand true fans were, he was able to. Those are, those are 50 of them in that room that 50 night. 50 of them. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like putting in your 10,000 hours yeah. that Malcolm Gladwell talks yeah. about before you can be an expert or anything. Um, the, the, the thing that I think most artists should be focusing on now is fandom. It's, it's, it's creating people that are willing to talk about you. Word of mouth is the most powerful method of spreading any kind of message. You know, social media is faster, but word of mouth, and that can be over social media, but it's just sharing or whatever. But it's but it's sharing information from somebody that you actually trust or or with somebody that you actually trust. And that resonates uh, in a much more effective way than getting a review. But you've got to be good enough you know, and, you know, nowadays there's no, nobody has time for, I have often said over my years, the world doesn't need any more good music. And that's never been truer than now. Mm. You know, it's really, it's got to be standout or else. Don't, it's got to cut through the noise. It's got to cut through the noise. Yeah. And uh, otherwise just don't bother. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about this and even just our time getting to know each other and work on skillet projects together and, and I love this about, you know, Kid Rock, Simple Plan, Skillet, Uncle Cracker. You just seem like a fan of music. You're not stuck in one genre. And nowadays, mm-hmm. we talk about this all the time, That because some days we're producing church records, some days right. we're producing a rock record, some days we're producing a country record. And then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where there's entertainers who you know, there's artists and there's entertainers. Right. I, I tend to talk about artists and yeah. performers. It's, it's the same same concept. Yeah. We got into this whole thing because I I had shared an, an article or something that on my Facebook page about the whole, you know, bad baby phenomenon. The artist, mm-hmm. I, her, I can't think of what her name is. Uh, Danielle Bergoli. Danielle Bergoli. Yeah. So she was just signed recently to Atlantic. I posted it on my page and it was a guy's kind of analysis of that, but that sort of lit off an entire firestorm of comments and people being, you know, this is a disgrace to the music industry. She's she's not a real artist. She, but the things that you had to say to that, there's so much value in that because obviously the label saw something. Well, first of all, the idea of, of anybody in the music industry saying some, that something is a disgrace to the music industry yeah. is... is amusing it is on some level because because we've all been in projects that you know you might not want talked about it you know in a eulogy at your funeral (laughs) that's that's so true but but you know you got to make a living so no the thing the thing about that was i thought people were approaching it from the wrong angle which is which is something that i that i focus on a lot when i talk to young artists is i think that very often people ask the wrong questions Mm. and 
you know, the thing to glean from that, um, and, and for those of you who aren't kind of aware, which is she is a, she's kind of known as the cash me outside girl who, who was on Dr. Phil's show about a year ago and, you know, kind of told him off, which is uh, appealing on a certain level. I, you know, I, I can <laughs> see the, uh, the, the allure in that. But the, the reason people were, were so upset was that she, you know, fashions herself as a rapper, but she's not somebody who has a history of putting out music. She's, I mean, she's 14. So it's not like you, you know, would expect her to have a history of releasing yeah. mixtapes yeah. and, yeah. you know, and so on and so forth. But still she has this big record deal. And first of all, the presumption is you're assuming it's a big record deal. You have yeah. no idea how that deal is structured yeah. and what uh, whether thresholds have to be met for certain things to kick in. But yeah. regardless, the thing that that I thought was worth gleaning from the article was not that she's talented or untalented. It, it was about what major labels use to gauge whether they want to invest in a new act. And I drew a distinction between artists and performers, and maybe she'll end up being an artist. Uh, and a performer usually for me is someone who, you know, doesn't necessarily write their own songs or doesn't interpret a song in a way that is, like if you think of, you know, like Frank Sinatra, you know, nobody would say Frank Sinatra is a performer, not an artist because he didn't sing his own songs. Right. Right. Because right. he was, had such a, special way of living the music when he was singing he it and making it authentic. Yeah. And I think authenticity is a big, big part of it. Mm. So now I'm not going to try to compare it to Sinatra. That's unfair to her. But the point is more about, you know, she'll either have a moment or a bunch of moments or she won't. But the thing to be learned from it for young artists is, you know, she has a huge social media profile and whether you like it or not, and whether you like her or not, she probably doesn't care. Part of her mm. appeal to the people that are believers or, you know, have uh, a follow her or yeah. something like that is because she's doesn't conform to typical uh, behaviors and yeah. so on and so forth. And the label has clearly made a determination that they think if they give her the right musical vehicle that they can connect with people because there are a bunch of people that believe in her. It's what I was saying about fans. Now, we will see if the number of followers she has on social media follows and turns them into fans of the music. Yeah. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I think that's really what one should glean from it is the way majors use metrics to help determine which acts get signed and which ones don't. And I completely understand why a lot of music industry veterans were yeah. you know, up in arms about. Yeah. But there have always been acts that you know, were of sort of questionable talent. She may be super talented for all I know, but, yeah. you know, I've only heard the one song right. and seen the one video. Yeah. But as I said, I think people were gleaning the wrong bits of information from it. Yeah. And, you know, there's something in there that's a good lesson. Yeah, totally. Be, be learning to ask the right questions. Again, I love contrast. What are some of the wrong questions? What are some of the wrong questions? I think, I don't know if there's a wrong question as much as there as there are... Good questions and no questions. I haven't experienced a lot of bad questions in over my years. I've, or I've had a lot of interactions with aspiring artists who don't 
ask questions at all, just like yeah. I've had a lot of experiences with interns who don't ask questions. That's your biggest opportunity yeah. as an intern is yeah. to ask questions. Yeah. And part of that is knowing when to do it and when to not, and when to not yeah. ask them. Yeah. But that's the, you know, you're looking for nuggets of wisdom, you know, that, that is usually born from the experience you have yet to have. Yeah. Both in artists and, you know, would-be executives. Yeah. You know, I don't know if there's such a thing as a bad question. I mean, there might be questions that can reveal you to not be a particularly insightful person or maybe someone who's not able to grasp the obvious. Yeah. Lack of knowledge but, is more dangerous. But than, lack of knowledge is more yeah. dangerous, yeah. That's you know, good. so I think maybe that's the... Yeah. The real thing. Don't be afraid to ask questions, yeah. people, you know, if you're in a situation like that. But yeah. do it in a way where you can get an answer. Don't ask somebody, you know, when they're in the middle of something that where they clearly don't have time to interact with you, you know. But I've found that, you know, most executives and companies and most people who have wisdom to offer will usually offer it if you ask in the right way and at the right time. Yeah. I remember when I moved up here and I was an intern, a couple of the engineers at the studio that I worked at, they said something very similar. They're like, never lie to me about knowing, like knowing how to do something. If you don't know how to do it, say you don't know how to do it, but say you'll find out. And if you don't know, ask. Always ask. If you need to know something, you have to ask. Especially if you're in a studio back then, I presume you're working with a lot of tape back then, still probably still too. And, you know, if you screw that up... You know, yeah, you, you it's can't, done. it's gone. Yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't get that back. Yeah. You, you can't, you know, command Z it and, yeah. and have it come back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's really right. The, the, uh, the old saying, the old cliche is just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> exactly. you're, you're better off pretending, you know, less and giving yourself a little bit more to learn than pretending, <laughs> yeah. you know, more and being proven to be a fool or, you know, yeah, danger, I'd dangerous. Be, yeah, in I'd studio. rather be embarrassed than just thoroughly destroy something that someone's yeah. worked really hard to create. But sometimes, you know, I have often said to myself that I mean, we've all had moments where we've done something or said something stupid oh, yeah. in a situation where we were not aware enough, or you know, we said something that was obvious, and you get looks from people like, "Dude, come on," you know, keep up. Really? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But I would rather that than be the guy who ruined the session or the guy, <laughs> the guy that, you know didn't catch something and then you've got to answer for it. You know, ignorance is a, is a better thing to plead, yeah. you know, than stupidity. Yeah. Can you talk about, cause you shared something earlier that I thought was fascinating, but the one skill that really honestly artists and, and people in our business would benefit to have, you kind of shared a little personal anecdote about that. You know, I, I think, I've had a lot of interesting experiences. You know, when I was in college, I studied, I was a poli-sci major, but I studied a lot of music. And the, the poli-sci was always an interest of mine, but I think I would have rather, rather been a music major in retrospect. But my dad and I had a conversation and we came to an agreement. But when I graduated, I realized that basically qualified me to be a lawyer, which I had no desire to do because yeah. I, I wanted to rock. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and so well put. <laughs> I mean, it's, I it. it's, that's pretty much the, 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 the straight honest truth there. Yeah. But one of the things I also did when I was in college was I studied improv, improv comedy, which is why I'm so amusing all the time. <laughs> um, and once I started doing A&R, you know, I, I often found myself in situations where you were dealing with a lead singer who didn't have the confidence to interact with the audience in a way that seemed authentic. And authenticity is about as critical a component in, in any band or, or artist as you will ever find. 
you know, if the audience perceives something to be phony, it automatically makes them suspicious. Mm -hmm. And the worst, most egregious violation is usually something phony disguised as something that is not phony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To this day, if you remember back sort of Millie Vanilli back when yeah. uh, Seth was one, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, but people were shocked, just shocked that they didn't sing on their own record. You know, these two sort of fashion model dudes from Germany. It's like, you know, oh, the horror. Yeah. You know, <laughs> flash forward now, it's like, <laughs> these, not, these, not people like at all. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, <laughs> you know, people, it's like, there's no way these two dudes are singing yeah. on this record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and if they wanted to sing on it, chances are you'd be like, no, don't worry about it. We got yeah. this. We got the guy. Yeah. We'll we got fix it. it in post. Yeah. <laughs> we got it. Exactly. <laughs> I've often found that the transition from, especially if you're a lead singer who plays an instrument, which is tends to be guitar more often than not, bass is a lot harder to sing lead and, and play. So you tend to see a lot more guitar players. But it's a very, very tough transition for a lot of guys because that guitar is like a shield. And it enables you to put something literally in between yourself and the audience. And when you take it away, it's a very, very difficult transition for a lot of singers. They can do the singing fine, you know, whether they have the kind of optimal stage persona without that guitar. I mean, that's something obviously that most have to work on too to develop. But the confidence to interact with the audience beyond going, this song is called, I don't have anything else to say. Yeah. Or this song is, you know, <laughs> that can be extremely hard. And I've sent singers to improv classes and I've recommended it for colleagues as well because what that does is it teaches you to not be afraid to not know what you're going to say next. Mm. And it's something that has been invaluable for me in terms of speaking in front of, you know, large audiences and and crowds of people. It doesn't solve every uh, insecurity, you know, but if you ask people what their worst fear is, that probably doesn't involve, yeah. you know, death or extreme <laughs> bodily harm, yeah. they will probably say public speaking. Yeah. And that's not my greatest fear. And it's because I studied improv. So I would recommend that to <laughs> anybody who's got that fear and, and thinks it's inhibiting them. Oh, yeah. Me and X are That's gonna awesome. go do that this weekend. I know. That is excellent. Well, well I'm you, starting tonight. We can, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Believe me, it really is. So you were gonna share with us a story and then we were like, well, I should just put this on the podcast. Oh, this, yeah, this is a complete non sequitur. Uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, <laughs> this, will be, this will be a great <laughs> transition. way to wrap this guy up. I mean, because it, it, it's, it's been all gold it'll, so it'll far. Tie, so. It'll tie yeah. in somehow. But okay, so there was this is one of my favorite things that ever happened to me in the music business. Pretty early in my career, I went to a music conference in Philadelphia. It was called the Philadelphia Music Conference. Very, very great name. name. Yeah, great It's been a long time coming up with that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, if you are going to these conferences, if you speak on a panel, usually they will give you a free pass to attend the conference. So as a young A&R person at the time, you know, a it's big great. part of why you're going is just trying to meet people. Yeah. Yep. You know, you're, you go see some bands, you walk with, come home with way more demo tapes than you can ever listen to. <laughs> so I, I was agreed to appear on the A&R panel very happily. The only person I remember for sure was on that panel was my old buddy, Greg Hammer, who's the head of uh, Red Bull Records out in LA. We were both young, schnooky A&R guys. <laughs> so anyway, so we're, I'd say the audience is maybe 150 people, something like that. And, you know, usually it's a very, very typical back and forth. How do I get signed? How do I, yeah. you know, we're talking now, this was, this was the mid to late 90s. So this was maybe 96, 97, 80, something like that. So how do I get signed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so finally, you know, you're taking questions from the audience and a guy raises his hand and stands up. And this guy had stuck out a little bit. He was wearing a white sweatshirt and white sweatpants with tennis shoes. And he looked like Santa Claus. Except he was wearing, instead of a red Santa hat, he was wearing a red, white, and blue cat in the hat <laughs> hat. <laughs> and he starts firing off invective against all of us on stage in a very thick sort of Cockney yeah. <laughs> style British accent. And he's going, you guys don't know hits. You don't know anything I know about hits. You guys are nothing. You don't know anything about hits. I know about hits. And, and I leaned over <laughs> my microphone and I said, excuse me, did you say you know all about hits or you know all about hats? And that was the end of that. <laughs> he, he laughed and he sat down. That was the end of the. That's awesome. That was the end of of, of the you know of of the panel. So that's a great way to conclude the panel. That's it was, it, and it, it actually does segue well because the exciting thing is we've gotten to spend you know a good bit of time with you today, and I feel like just in our few hours we've had together in the times that we've worked together. I've learned so much just oh, from our that. relationship. I appreciate it. You guys do great things here. And yeah. Well, and, and the wisdom and, and, and really the reality check, I think, is so much of it. Because as people who are aspiring to make it in the music business, I think so many people want to buy a product mm -hmm. or they want to go to an event where they're going to meet the right person or they want to have their song get on the right Spotify playlist. All those things are good things, but there's really not one magic bullet. There's never a magic bullet. There's no... And this is something that I, that I imagine a lot of young people who are kind of used to immediate gratification that, we, that the technology allows for us in our culture. There is, unfortunately, no magic bullet to see your way through. And, you know, if you're a musician... If you're a player, if you're a, an electronic artist, if, if you're a DJ, no matter how you realize your musical ideas, and when I say music, I really mean just if you're an instrumentalist yeah. as opposed to, because I'm not implying that DJs are not yeah. uh, musicians. That's not, I know very vividly, that's not the case. Yeah. But the key to all of it is being authentic, working hard, working smart, being willing to get kicked in the teeth and still get up. And it's, you do it because you have to do it. You mentioned before about the kind of the breadth of my personal tastes. And it, it's very true. I think there was Louis Armstrong who had a saying, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. Mm. And that's how I've always kind of looked at it. And, and I'm fortunate that I listen to music without irony. Yeah. So if you saw me wearing a shirt that was an ABBA shirt or something <laughs> like that, it was because I wanted to wear an ABBA shirt because I like ABBA and they're yeah. awesome. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with me going, hey, look at me, I'm wearing an ABBA shirt. And yeah. they're bunch of poppy Swedish dudes from the 70s. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not what music's about. It's, yeah. a, you know, it's about expressing yourself honestly and authentically and then connecting with people that appreciate it. So the one thing that I'll say that I found to be the closest thing there is to a magic bullet, though, is get around people who are doing it, who have done it for a long time and are where you ultimately want to be and just learn from them. And I think, I think that's very valuable. And to take that one step further, yeah. 
if you are a musician. I am one myself. I'm a bass player. And, and the situations where I have learned the most have been where I was the worst player in the band. That's right. If there's one thing to learn from that, and this ties back into something we were talking about earlier, great golfers don't mind playing with lousy golfers as long as they're willing to pick up their ball and not slow the pace of play down, right? And I make that analogy because musicians who are better than you usually are happy to play with you if you're prepared yeah. and you understand what your role is in the context of that group, yep. right? Do your job. Yeah. And nobody wants to play with somebody who doesn't know how to do their job. Yeah. And that can be either you don't know the material or you play too many fills or you're playing in the wrong, you know, or a piano player who insists on playing in the vocal range or you're a bass player who's, you know, pretends they're, soloing all the time and isn't yeah. holding down the bottom end <laughs> when you've got a guitar yeah. player who's playing hard. You know, all of that stuff that you learn from being around people that are better than you yeah. or that are more experienced than you. Don't be afraid to do that. Yeah. And don't be afraid to learn from Be humble yeah. and yeah. be always willing to learn from people who've yeah. got more experience. Yeah. And this is one of the perks of us getting to do what we do with, you know, not only with Full Circle Music and producing records, but with the Full Circle Music show, we get to hang out with guys like you. But to take it even a step further, the whole reason why we started our audience has heard us talk about Full Circle Music Academy a lot of times, and we'll probably hear it even more because it's you know really just been ramping up. Our events have been getting bigger and better. Mm -hmm. But the reason why we do them is essentially we align with people who we share a vision with for making great music and wanting to give back and bring other people along for the ride. And I love that that's what you're about. You, you've started a company called Artist Haven. Mm -hmm. Maybe we dive into that at a later podcast. Sure, but love to. The awesome thing is that you're going to be here with us in a few months. Yes, yep. Look, looking forward to it. And, and I'm expecting a puppet show as well. So There will be a puppet show. Oh, sure. Maybe even a magic show. That's a oh whole boy. Maybe Spinal Tap and puppets. Yeah, that's even, even better. So if our, our listeners out there are thinking, man, I wish I could sit across a table from this guy. Well, here, you'll have a chance to do that. And he's going to be here in Nashville with us just in a couple months, but it's going to be great. And again, this is the opportunity to come and just ask your questions. I mean, that's really why we do these events. It's, it's not really not out of a, any other motivation than that. We want to see the people who want to succeed and work hard to have an avenue to do that when they might have not otherwise. So, right. Well, you know, as music people, it's, it's important, you know, to give back is a yeah. cliche and I hate trafficking cliches, but it's more about, you know, there are realities about music as a profession and as a focus of your life that you are really helped by learning. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can learn some of those things before you have to go through them yeah. and rebound from them, you know, then that yeah. will just simplify your life a little bit more. But as we all know, at the end of the day, that the single most important thing, it's a compelling singer singing a compelling song. Songwriting is the hardest component to learn. And that's something I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. a lot at that seminar. Yeah. But that's part of what you guys yep. focus on here. And it's, yep. you know, that's the thing that you can't really take lessons yeah. and necessarily learn to do better unless you have a very, very yeah. you know, strong background in theory and you can break down the harmonic motion of songs and see why certain types of chord progressions work and certain kinds of melodies work over yeah. certain chords. That's, you know, but a lot of folks won't be able to do that. Yeah. And that's okay. You don't necessarily have to be able to do that. But 
I think uh, it was a bass player, Jeff Berlin. I remember reading, saying something in one of his articles years ago, which, which was uh, the best reason to learn things, learn theory is that you don't have to ever think about it and you can just play. Mm. You know, yeah. songwriting is something that's often learned through osmosis. Yeah. By working with people that are better at it than you are. Yeah. yeah. And the great thing is, is and, and I know this because, you know, we've worked in several different genres. You've obviously worked in, in a lot of genres of music, but these things that we're talking about are true across the board. Yep. It's not that just because this is something that worked in pop music, it's not going to work in Christian music or in hip hop. These are just... Music is music. Music is music. Music is music. And, you know, the corollary to that, obviously, we're talking about authenticity, yeah. but it's in, music is music and it's important for acts to try to figure out what is their true voice. And if that voice is contains a Christian message or some other kind of spiritual message or doesn't, yeah. it's only going to work if it's sincere yeah. and if it comes from the heart. That's what's going to connect people to it. And that's a universal musical truth, I think. Yeah. This has been amazing having you. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Very generous of you. I know you're a very busy man, but I, I love that you're a fan of music and we can just talk about music for a day and it's a, have it's a, good a pleasure. Time. I, you know, I love talking uh, shop with, you know, really smart musical people and folks who are approaching everything the right way. And, mm. and you know, I think it's great what you guys are doing here and trying to help yeah. fuel the next generation of, uh, of great yeah. artists. Yeah, know, thanks, man. That's, uh, we appreciate it. That's yeah, a good, good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey guys, this is X O'Connor and you've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. The show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jordan Salamone. Don't forget, end of this month, end of January, the 100th episode is going to be an extremely special episode where we're going to be launching something brand new, making some big changes that you guys are going to love. We're super excited to roll it out for you. Don't forget, end of the month, 100th episode, it's going to be a huge deal. We cannot wait to reveal our new plans to you guys. You're going to love it. Again, if you want to keep up with everything in the Full Circle Music world, head on over to Instagram, at Official FC Music. We can't wait to see you guys next week.